0: Hey, before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might be into. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mystery that is Russia with the help of those who know her best, Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former KGB spy. Join Global News Europe Bureau Chief Jeff Semple on a journey to find out how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying This Is Why. Ten years ago, the Olympic flame made its way across Canada. I'm Nikki wright and this is Why.
1: Good evening. Downtown Halifax was nothing short of a mob scene. Thousands of highly enthusiastic fans hitting the streets, cheering on the Olympic torch relay tonight. Hockey star and hometown hero Sidney Crosby, just one of the celebrities at the event.
0: It was phenomenal. I've just never seen so many people that were just... The the joy and the, uh, the hollering and the... I, I just soaked it all up
2: like a sponge, it was wonderful. Got
0: a big crowd there and a noisy crowd,
2: Shay. Yeah,
1: look the kids from Glen Island School here. Up, they're all here. It's going a mile down Baseline Road here, Shay. We're about 20 minutes away from the torch, coming right by our location, heading down Baseline, then down Broadmoor, down
0: Main Boulevard, A 13-hour journey from Lloydminster to Edmonton ended in Churchill Square as the Olympic flame made its way through Alberta. Here at home, the Olympic torch relay is inching closer to Toronto, but tonight it's the city of Oshawa that's welcoming the Olympic flame. Thousands of spectators lined city streets as the flame passed from hand to hand.
1: That enthusiasm seems to spread like wildfire wherever the torch travels. What did
0: you think when you saw it run right by you? I
1: thought it was a good thing for Canada. The memories that were made tonight will burn just as strong as the torch itself.
0: It seems hard to imagine, but it's been 10 years since the Olympic torch relay began. 106 days later, the flame would arrive in Vancouver, B.C., and the 2010 Winter Games would officially be underway.
1: So the relay was going to start. It started a half an hour after we arrived in Victoria and then we were on the road for 106 days with the sole purpose of trying to make sure that the Olympic flame got within you know, one hour of every Canadian, wherever they lived, whatever community they lived in, so that they could all say that they that this was theirs, that in actual fact as a nation-building event, it lived up to its promise. So today was game on after all of those years in planning. I mean, this was October the 30th, 2009. The idea to go chase the Olympic Games happened in the summer of 1996. So it was a long time to get to that day where suddenly it was all happening.
0: John Furlong was the CEO and president of the 2010 Olympic Organizing Committee. It's hard to believe that it's been 10 years since the Olympic flame made its way across Canada.
1: It is hard to believe. I have to look in the mirror to believe it. 10 years. (laughs) is fascinating you know we were just uh, talking this morning about what it felt like last night you know we were we were in the uh, 10 years ago we were in the Olympic stadium in Athens in the old ancient stadium uh, receiving the Olympic flame from the Greek organizers and then taking that flame on board a Canadian forces jet and flying it across the world, touching down in Reykjavik to refuel, and then flying across the Arctic and landing in Victoria and and taking the flame off the plane and putting it on the tarmac with the Prime Minister there and the Premier and First Nations chiefs and everyone. And what was, you know, fascinating for, for us was this. We had spent years talking, planning, promising, trying to paint... A picture build a tapestry of what was coming and people only had our word to go on and so this was the first time that we were able to make it real
0: first of all let me say you gave me anxiety just trying to imagine flying across (laughs) the world and hoping that that flame didn't burn out while i was on an airplane over the atlantic (laughs)
1: Well, I'll tell you what it was like. So we had six lanterns because you you know that was a real risk for us to worry about if the flame went out because you have to go back and relight it using the traditional means that the Greeks use, which is lighting it from a a parabolic bowl in the in the Olympic Grove. So we had six lanterns. They all carried a, a piece of the flame, and they were strapped into six seats on that plane, and they were surrounded by RCMP officers. They were treated like they were heads of state, to be honest, and it was protected from the second it got on the plane until the flame arrived in the stadium in Vancouver in 2012 for the, you know, obviously because it's a sacred flame but also we were concerned about, you know, the possibility that it would go out and not only would it be uh, greatly embarrassed, we'd be greatly embarrassed by it but the logistics that we would then face would be insurmountable.
0: Oh, I can't even imagine. Well, amazingly, it did make it to Canada and thank goodness it did (laughs) because the events that followed were historic for our country. How did it feel for you after all of that anticipation literally years worth of anticipation and all of that planning to know that the very first torchbearer had started their part of the relay feet were on the ground and they were moving that torch across Canada and this thing was actually happening what did you feel when that first torch started to make their way on their journey
1: well, the first few hours were very high anxiety because, you know, we had again we had been practicing for this, and so the relay itself was a logistical monster of an event to try to stage because we were operating, you know, in real time in one community, and we were up the road in another community preparing for the next day, and then then the day after that, and so it was very high anxiety, but at the same time a sense of relief because we were now the game had started, and now we our primary um, objective was. Is to sustain the effort and build it and build a sense of euphoria across the country. And I remember thinking, you know, we started in Victoria. We spent two or three days on Vancouver Island. And one of the advantages to being at home at the beginning was, you know, sorting out all the little things that are not quite perfect at the beginning. And then, obviously, when you go off out into the rest of Canada, you know, hopefully you have this operation that's humming along. And But there was this concern we had deep down that, uh, you know, we knew that British Columbians would embrace this. We just knew they would. You know that it was, was their project; they were very proud. But when the when the flame touched down in in another province or territory was the real test for us. And the first real test came when the plane that we had chartered for this purpose landed in Old Crow, which is a very northern community. and And on the day the flame arrived, it was the first time a jet had ever landed on that that airport. Um, and the city of Old Crow, or sorry, the town or village of Old Crow, if you like, had doubled in size. And then we knew. It was happening, and it was game on, and that the country was ready for this. And they were all, you know, we could, we knew that as they as it went across Canada, that this would build and build and build. And by the time it got back to Vancouver, we would have this huge euphoria. The whole project would have the wind at its back, and we would be set up for success.
0: And I'm just thinking back to that torch relay, and you know, like yourself, I look in the mirror and go, Oh, geez, that was 10 years ago. I've had a few more wrinkles since then. But if <laughs> if I remember <laughs> if I remember correctly. Anyone could apply to be a torchbearer, correct? I mean, there was there was lots yeah. of amazing celebrities that did yeah. it, but everyday folk could apply yeah. to run that torch through their own communities.
1: Well, most of the runners were people that were randomly selected. And and yes, and that was also important because it was important to us that, that real people in real towns and villages across the country were running and, and that their friends and families could see them. And you know, it was not unusual for someone to show up to receive the torch and have two or 300 friends and family around them on the side of the road. I mean, this is how this was working. And so it was quite special. And in that way, we were touching more and more and more people every day. These were folks that would you know after the games were over and after the flame was long gone they'd be talking about this sharing it with their children and remembering the contribution that they made to the story of the olympic games
0: and they truly were a part of that story i also vividly remember a lot of big name celebrities took part in that relay race as well
1: well of course the last the final one uh ones we all know wayne gretzky and you know, uh, Katrina LeMay and Steve Nash and, you know, great Canadian athletes, but all across the country, we were iconic Canadians were called on to come out and join in. So there were, you know, all kinds of stars. I mean, here in Vancouver, um, Jimmy Patterson ran in the relay and I think it was a profound moment for him. And we tried to, you know, we went back and we, we, we found that we got the captain for the first Canucks team to go to the Stanley Cup, uh, since Meal, and he ran in the relay and Trevor linden run in the relay and so we we had you know artists and musicians from across the country and in this way of course there was another reason for people to come out and see their heroes carrying the flame it made the flame itself more relevant it made the whole project more real and and it again you know i remember um you know the games got off to a, a pretty difficult start on the first day um when nodar Kumaritashvili was killed at, at almost the same moment that arnold schwarzenegger and sebastian Coe, who was the ceo of the london games were exchanging the flame in stanley park and so all of all of these folks had all come together to you know participate in this and you know you know to try to uh, to contribute something to it that made the relay that much more special so it it has a, a remarkable story all of its own with many 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 chapters in it
0: my final question for you because perhaps this is my most vivid memory of the relay is those white snow suits that everybody was wearing with the red mittens. How did you come up with right. that design?
1: So well, the snowsuit was was fairly, uh, you know, was just simply an exercise in trying to find the right design. And we were trying to align the design of the uniforms with with the overall brand for the games and the look and feel of the games. So it looked like it was part of this sort of uh, the decor, the the backdrop that the games was 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 staged against. So that was there. The red mittens, though, became this international story of so how we we came up with the mittens. That when we were were doing the competition to select a game's logo, one of the submissions was a red mitten. And we were quite intrigued by it, and the feeling in our team was that the red mitten has a place to, uh, to play, or a, it could be a story in, in, in the games. And we came up with the idea of, of developing, you know, this, this, these mittens as a souvenir that almost every Canadian could afford to have. And I remember at the time, you know, people were talking about, you know, we, may, we might sell two or three or four hundred thousand of these. Well, we ended up selling many, many millions of them. People became completely infatuated by these mittens and bought them in very large numbers and shipped them all over the world and so the games almost became known by these red mittens you know you would see broadcasters on tv in japan or france or england and they would put them on on tv and and so they became part of the great story that the games uh and it and it became one of those other symbols that uh, that people recognize as very canadian
0: Coming up later in this episode, has Tim Hortons become uncool? You're listening to This Is Why, a national radio show and podcast from Global News. Download and subscribe online now. What do you think of Tim Hortons? Is it the brand that you remember it being 10 or 15 years ago? A lot has changed in recent times for that restaurant chain. At the end of 2014, they merged with Burger King, which created Restaurant Brand International. In the years that followed, sales growth at Tim Hortons became slow, stagnant, or negative. Meanwhile, Restaurant Brand saw positive results from Burger King and then Popeyes. Since the merger, many people said that the quality declined, be that the quality of the food or even the cups that they serve coffee in. Devika Desai is a web producer with The National Post, and she wrote an article that you can read in The Financial Post. It's titled, A Cup Half Empty, Tim Horton's Struggle to Stay Relevant in a New Generation of Canadians. You know, if we think back Mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago, Tim Hortons had this real place in the hearts of Canadians. It was it was a part of Canadian culture, a part of the Canadian mm-hmm. identity.
2: Um, so it's really funny. I actually didn't grow up in Canada. I grew up outside of Canada. But as someone who didn't grow up in Canada, Tim Hortons was still something that I think it was the one of the first things that I that I would think of when someone talked about I think mean, Canada to me because it's just so representative of what Canadian culture is, right? Because really? that's how it advertises itself. That's so yeah, interesting. Um, you know the whole the coffee and the donuts and just the kind of uh, I think the way it will be advertised to us that that sense of community, that sense of belonging, that sense of I think kindness and niceness. You know, it's just about hey. um go have a cup of coffee with your neighbours. Hey, go share a donut with your neighbours. I think that's what Canada is known for globally, right? This reputation of, you know, kindness, this reputation of generosity. In terms of its association with, with the Canadian sport of hockey and the ice rink, um, again, I didn't grow up over here, so that's something I only really got to know when I came here. But frankly, I only moved here about, I think, about five, six years ago. Someone who just didn't even grow up here, that's what Tim Hortons even represented to me. So for me to imagine what it must have represented to Canadians, to people who lived here, especially to people who lived in, I think, rural towns and, you know, where that where that community vibe is even stronger than it would be in cities, I can't even imagine what it must have been, what that nostalgia must have been like. I think your
0: perspective on this is so interesting, though, because (laughs) you are describing, you know, what defines Canadian culture wrapped up in a brand. So, you know, as someone Mm -hmm. who who was foreign born, to even get that sense out of Tim Hortons, I think really speaks to what the brand of Tim Hortons represented to Canadians. And now we know that it's changed Mm -hmm. and there has been this decline of Tim Hortons. And it seems as though we Mm -hmm. can pinpoint that decline to about
2: five years ago? Mm-hmm. Yes. So from what I've researched and what I've read, it seemed to have sort of started when it was acquired by Burger King. And in turn, they formed a Restaurants brand international. And then from there, it just seemed like things just started to decline. It was just sort of a series of, I think, bad business decisions, cost-cutting decisions that in turn seemed to... I think inadvertently, sort of, distanced importance from this Canadian brand legacy. And um, in that sense, it, it started distance, distancing itself inadvertently, not just from customers, but also from its franchise owners. And unfortunately, all those bad decisions, all those sort of acrimonious roles, all of that was played out on a public platform through media coverage. That's just pretty much a PR nightmare. And I think, as one of my sources said, and that's what I wrote in the article, that sort of just took that shine out of the Tim Hortons Canadiana, that sense of, again, community within the organization.
0: Yeah, I mean, if part of your brand is the portrayal of neighborliness, and then you're seen having public disputes with your franchise owners, that doesn't really paint a picture of someone who's a good neighbor.
2: Exactly. It's sort of the opposite. It's like if, if the parent company doesn't seem to be there for their franchise owners, then how are they supposed to put forward this image of, you know, one neighbor being for the other, for family members being for, there for each other? If they, you know, if if you don't practice what you preach, then it sort of negates the very message that you're trying to convey, Right. It seems to be that younger people,
0: and I'm thinking the millennial age group, are finding Tim Hortons mm-hmm. less appealing compared to some of the other options that are available. So what mm-hmm. are millennials looking for that Tim Hortons isn't offering?
2: I think and again this is based in my in my interviews, I think Tim Hortons uh, to an extent has always I think marketed themselves as sort of the cheaper stability brand, like the brand that you just kind of go to just to get a quick cup of coffee. Whereas I think, you know, brands like Starbucks is always marketed themselves as this luxurious brand. They've always distinguished themselves in the kind of specialty products that they offer. And they're pretty good at like keeping up with the trends. So I think what millennials and especially with the Gen Z population, I think what we're all about is We're all about the trends. We're all about what's cool, what's not cool. You know, this new fashion friend or this matcha latte with cinnamon spicing. I'm not really sure. Um, (laughs) And I think, unfortunately, Tim Hortons hasn't really been keeping up with that. So they aren't exactly as relevant. To this to segment of the population, I think right now they're still sort of offering the same things and I think they haven't exactly as you know one of the, one of my sources in the, in my article said they haven't exactly you know gone beyond the usual birthday sprinkle donut and it's just a matter of trying to figure out what their strength is and trying to capitalize on that strength.
0: This is Why is produced by John O'Dowd and me, Nikki Reitmeier. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can download, subscribe, or listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. Give us a rating as well as a review. And if you'd like, you can always send us an email. This is why at curiouscast.ca.
1: Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.